Heavenly Father, we ask that because we have attended to your word, we may be filled with your spirit to live out your will and make music in our hearts. Amen. Do please sit. And do please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. It's on page uh, 1175. And it begins, so. I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Paul is insisting. He's using the full force of his apostolic authority. But what for? Why? Well, there's a a danger at a number of points in this letter, because uh, it's so good. Each passage has its own things to say, and each passage could stand on its own, and we can neglect the ways that they fit together. But think back, if you've been here, over what we've had in our last few weeks. There's been a great deal about unity. A unity that takes real effort to maintain. Let's track it. It's it's a unity that's been established between Jew and Gentile. In chapter 2 and verse 3, we read that the sinful nature and the wrath of God upon that nature, that was the central problem for Jew and Gentile. In verse 16 of chapter 2, we learn that the cross was the answer to that problem for both Jew and Gentile, to reconcile both of them in one body to God through the cross. In chapter 3 and verse 6, we hear that the Gentiles are now heirs together with Israel, members with Christ. And then we hear, as we've done of all that must be maintained in order to uh, keep that unity. But now here in verse 17 of chapter 4, we get, uh, the first time, a very honest recognition that the step is a far bigger one for you and me than it is for the Jews. It's a far bigger jump for the Gentiles What Christ has done to rescue Jew and Gentile means a bigger shift for the Gentiles who haven't known the ancient promises. So Paul at the beginning in verse 17 makes this strong apostolic claim because he's about to deliver what we would these days call a big ask. He's going to make a strong demand about the shift in lifestyle that's required of Gentiles. Because, he says... They are futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, separated because of ignorance. And that shows up in a self-indulgence, in impure sensuality. Now, although that's about us, uh, I'm not going to spend very much time on that. I want to crack on. So if you want technicolor descriptions of exactly what sensuality Paul had in mind, you're not going to get them. I'm sorry if that's a disappointment to you. 
I'll refer back to it, but I want to move on because the shape of the rest of the passage is calling me. And it works like this. In contrast to that life of the Gentiles, Paul describes the teaching that's come to the church. And in the next paragraph, 20 to 24, he reminds them of the heart of that teaching. Then in verses 25 to 31, he offers five examples of the difference in a number of areas. He sums it up in chapter 5, the beginning of it. So in verse 21, he reviews the teaching that they have received. Not only is it about Christ, not only is it teaching that's delivered in Christ by by people in Christ, to others in Christ, but it is in accordance, he says, with the truth about the earthly life of the person we know as Jesus. Well, perhaps some of them were getting to be so heavenly-minded that they were of no earthly use. No, says Paul, the life of Jesus himself as we know it. The earthly life of Jesus is consistent with everything that has to be learned in and about the heavenly Christ. And then he uses this image. It's a very powerful one. And every generation has its image. When I was a student, the language was of, uh, we talked of giving our lives to Christ actually language that doesn't have a great deal of warrant in Scripture, some, but not a lot. But it, in, the, uh, in the early days of the church, when Paul is talking, there is this key image, clearly, and we know it from a number of other places, taking off the old self and putting on the new one. And Paul covers that in verses 22 to 24. You were taught to put off your old self with the deceitful desires, presumably like those that the Gentiles uh, demonstrate in verses 17 to 19 earlier on, desires that are deceitful and corrupting. And that presumably is what he had in mind when he said that the sensuality of the Gentiles has this continual lust for more. Those are the desires that he is aware of. It's not satisfying enough for these Gentiles to follow one perversion, But one leads to another and to another, getting worse, but not recognizing that worse is exactly what it is. Isn't it true that what many in our society would now call a harmless bit of fun, whatever that is, is the kind of thing that would make their grandparents blush, even if those grandparents themselves aren't believers in any way at all? The yardstick moves. So what is considered good and bad moves with it. There is that lust in the culture for more and more. And you are taught to put off that old self with its deceitful desires. And then in a moment we'll see that we are to put on the new self. But in between, at verse 23... I want to spend some time on this business of being made new in the attitude of your minds. Because it's simply extraordinary how much the life of the mind is in view in this passage. Remember those Gentiles? Futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, separated because of ignorance. Thinking, understanding, ignorance. These are mind words. 
The mind is where it starts. And uh, when Paul describes the change, it's not in terms fundamentally of the decision of the will that you've made, or initially the change in your lifestyle. He focuses on this. You were taught in him in accordance with the truth. And truth is going to be a big deal uh, for the rest of our passage too. Nigel was right to bring it out in our prayers. It begins in the attitude of your minds. I'm guessing that quite a lot of us know one of the main problems of the church in a great deal of Africa. It's not difficult to run a mission in Africa and have people turn to follow Christ. The growth in the church is explosive across the whole region. But far fewer are the places where minds are being renewed. And many of the tragedies of the African church come from that lack of renewal of the mind, very often. The churches of Africa turn out to be living in verse 14, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. And that's why we took the decision exceptionally to declare that Claude Scott's return venture to the Congo would be a part of our church mission effort, uh, with the simple effect that it means he can reclaim gift aid on any donations that come to him through the church. Uh, There will be such envelopes for gift aiding, any donation at the back. Maybe you weren't here when Claude was here recently and explained uh, what he's been up to. He's gone back to the Congo, to uh, a church that his father uh, established. Uh, And what is it they want from him? Yes, they greet him as Claude, the, the son of the man who established our church. And yes, there is no doubt great praise and feasting. What is it they want? They want the renewal of the mind. He'll be running teaching sessions because the demand is clear, and that'll be like water in a desert. He'll have with him a Bible commentary, the life of the mind again, but one that's in Swahili, and it will be for them like the distribution of gold. They know what they are missing, and what Claude wants to do is to make that teaching, make those books available at no cost to those who are probably going to be trekking a long way through bush to get to wherever he's delivering his teaching. And that's our job, to make it possible for him to deliver it free so that they don't have to pay for anything while they are there. They know what they are missing, teaching, truth, the renewal of the mind to stand up against the deceitful desires that so easily pull away and corrupt. The life of the mind matters. And what shall we say of ourselves, that we need it? Sorry, that they need it, but we don't? How many of us hope that in the churning intellectual chaos of our time, we don't get asked a question in the office that will throw us or leave us having to reflect, oh, I think someone said something useful about that at our Bible study last week. What it would be like 
If every single one of us could go into our workplaces and our colleges and even our families equipped with no more than a Bible, but knowing what to do with it. So come to that session that Mark described on the 20th. A little later on in that session, it'll focus on uh, work for small group leaders, but the earlier part of it will be for any. Just how to access this scripture thing. How to use your mind to get the most out of your Bible so that a Bible study isn't something someone else prepares, but something you can do. A way that you can organize your own study of Scripture so that it sticks and you aren't walking away from the tea trolley or the water cooler thinking, well, if only X were here, she'd have known how to handle that. Sign up for it. See Alison. Because if your mind is not being renewed that way, then the inevitable law of spiritual reality dictates that it will be turning back to deceitfulness. And incidentally, just let me give a a plug for an article in here from Peter Bussey, uh, taking on what's uh, going on around the whole fuss around Stephen Hawking. Use the mind. Use the bookstore. English Christians read very, very few Christian books. And is that because we are a towering beacon of holiness and glorious understanding? It seems not. Read, understand, be renewed in the attitude of your mind, and so put on your new self. Well, according to verse 24, what characterizes that new self? True righteousness and holiness. Well, those are Bible words. It's what we'd expect Paul to say. I need some good words here. Let's use righteousness and holiness. But it's so much more than that. Consider what those words mean. The Gentiles are involved in a culpable ignorance. But the church of God is clothed in righteousness, in a status of a right relationship with God, in which understanding flows, the understanding of mind and heart working together. The mind and heart are clear, But the Gentiles are also involved in sensuality and every kind of impurity, while the church of God is happy to serve God's purposes as holy, standing apart to be for him. So righteousness and holiness, the words he uses, they're not just reached for out of the grab bag of generally good words. They are the mirror image of ignorance and sensuality that's going on in the life of the Gentiles. Let's remember that that's us. The translation here is a very good one. It has it right. It's not a call to us now, as it's set out, to put off the old and put on the new. It's in the past. There's a recognition that you were taught to do this and you have done it. But there is a now and a not yet. Just like in verse 21, you heard of him, your initial reaction in the past, and then also you were taught in him. There was a continuing learning. The assumption here is that there is a first commitment to Christ involved in a a putting off and a putting on, and that was symbolized in the clothes of baptism. But there's also a continuing service of Christ that means uh, an increasing inhabiting of that putting off and putting on. And what will that look like? And then here come those five examples. 
Well, before we go into those examples, let's just reflect on the notion of using an example at all. The world around us thinks that Christianity is about morality already. And we have understandably become terrified of letting the Christian faith be known in the world as having this moral dimension, in case we just increase that sense that, oh, it's all about being nice. It's all about being goody-two-shoes. And that's somehow enough for God. But the, the, but the morality that the, church, that the world thinks Christianity is, is not the morality that Paul and Jesus talk about. They think, in the world, that it's about whether you go to the pub, whether you go to church. But if they knew that what we cared about, and Paul is going to talk about this in a minute, if what we cared about was truth-telling, the management of anger, and the value of hard work, wouldn't there be more impact? When you've gone to the study session on the 20th, and when you go back into your small group, ask this question. How do the people I meet expect the lives of Christians to be different? Then how does the Bible expect Christian lives to be different? And what is the difference between those two differences? And I suspect it's considerable. So, anyway, launching into our examples from verse 25 onwards. First, tell the truth. Secondly, quoting Psalm 4 in verse 26... Do not sin in your anger. There are going to be times when you're angry. Indeed, how, can't, how can you not live in this world, a world so far from God's purposes, and not get angry? But recognize the temptations involved. We all know the ways we get angry when we shouldn't. Don't be self-righteous. Don't keep grudges going. Don't give the devil a foothold. This one is, it comes with that extra warning about the devil. Then don't steal. Now, for, for you and me, we have this kind of image of what stealing might be. It might be the nicking of a, of a radio from a car parked uh, there at confirmation. It might be a little bit of shoplifting. But in the world in which Paul was moving, stealing was something very different. Let me tell another Africa story, and some of you will know it. Um, uh, Nettie's uh, daughter and son-in-law have just moved to Tanzania to head up uh, a Christian school there. Very soon after they moved, their neighbours uh, were burgled. And uh, David, son-in-law, saw a thief running off. It was very destabilising and unsettling for them to know that the house right next door, so soon after they'd moved in, was being burgled. But that's the culture in which they're moving in which there is such desperate poverty on their doorstep because they have a nice house with the semi next door to someone else, uh, but in, surrounded by a shantytown. There is such desperate poverty that stealing is for some people a way of life. You're from the West, you must have lots. Let's go and get it. And that's much more like the culture that Paul is talking about when the gap between rich and poor is so enormous that stealing is itself almost a way of life. Don't steal. Instead, work hard. Then don't knock down with your speech. Verse 29. 
but build up. And this one comes with an extra warning too. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He started a work in you. It was, it's the Holy Spirit of God. He started a work. He sealed you. It's real. It's possessive. But it's against a future day, a future glory, the day of redemption. And then finally, don't give in to those divisive emotions, bitterness, anger, slander, malice. Go back to what I said, unity. Promote unity with what he calls here in verse 32, kindness and compassion. Be forgiving. Now, in all of this, at every point, Paul offers a motivation. And interestingly, it actually only struck me a little late as I was reading this. Tell the truth in verse 25 and forgive in verse 32 because of what has happened. You've been made one body and Christ has forgiven you. The other motivations look forward. Watch your anger to deny the devil. Work hard, but in order to give. Watch your speech in order to benefit those who listen. Either because of what has already happened in Christ or because the value of what will happen for others Act according to that new self. That adds up to a love that he talks about in verse 1 of chapter 5. And so as we move towards the finish, I've just got one question. Why doesn't it work? If I took any, if I took me or any one of you and turned this into a narrative, why doesn't it carry total credibility? Why is this not what it feels like? Why is it that I cannot say of myself the way I want to, or we cannot say of ourselves the way we want to, that we speak truthfully, we don't sin in anger, we never have thoughts of stealing, we never knock anyone down with our speech? Well, each one of us has to find our motivation, and that's why it's worth looking at those motivations. Maybe for you it's what Christ has done for you. Maybe it's about the benefit you can be to others. For me, it's in a word that we've not yet explored. It could have been left out completely. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God. It doesn't say that. There's that little insertion of a word, fragrant. And it doesn't mean um, it smells like flowers. Um, the notion of an offering accompanied by fragrance is from the language of the temple and the offering of uh, incense that let them know that the offering they were making was acceptable to God. It struck me because this week I've uh, had email exchange with a friend of mine who's been brought up through all the kind of things that we've covered already. It's been the backdrop to his life. But he's finding it personally a little arid, putting off the old, putting on the new. Yes, I know Jesus has done this. But somehow put, take, putting off the old self and putting on the new, this sense of a set of clothes that aren't me to start with. It's all feeling for him a little impersonal. He doesn't feel motivated by it. Now, I think he's misreading the entire Christian tradition. But that word fragrance was for me when I read it, and perhaps because of that email exchange, 
what brought the whole reading to life for me. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, when I give myself up for you, that makes my offering to God fragrant. When you do it for me, for one another, that makes your offering fragrant. It's not a mechanical exercise, putting off the old clothes, putting on the new. It's a recognition that throughout this whole passage, throughout the whole of Ephesians, throughout the whole of Paul, there is at the heart of it a sense of, I will give myself up for you. And that model is a fragrance in the nostrils of God. It's anything but the aridity that my friend is experiencing. It is a fragrance we are acceptable, not because we've said, look what I'm doing for you, God, but because we're saying to God, I want to give myself for them. That's what unity is about. Out of that comes the possibility of living with a renewed mind, because it's the motivation. At least that's the motivation that I've caught hold of this week. It makes quite legitimate if you have others that you found in that passage. That's fine too. But I want that fragrance. I want to know that what I do is not just a a fitting in with some words on a page, not just a mechanical exercise. I want to know that it's beautiful in the eyes of God and a fragrance in his nostrils. Let's pray. Lord, we can never hear of the change of life that belongs to those who follow Christ without a sense along the way of why isn't the change in my life more? It may be that others notice that change of life in us more than we do ourselves. But we give to you this morning our longing that there should be more more change, more of the life of your spirit, more of that newness of self, more of the new mind that is able to stand against corruption and deceit. May we this week find the motivation that leads us to that more, We know we'll find it somewhere in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But wherever it is, let us find it for ourselves. That we may be those who live inside the second part of our passage, living a life of love, just as Christ loved us. Amen.